from spiritual gifts and how to use them, all the way to dealing with prostitution in the church. Yeah, yikes. Um, So last week, Megan went over um, spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy, and also the role of women within the church. So this week we'll be in chapter 15, but before I jump in, I want to ask one question. When we're at impact, what is one of the most important rules? Oh, yes, y'all got it. Don't leave Jesus dead. So this isn't something that Ms. Ronslaven has just decided. That's going to be a fun thing to tell the kids over and over again. Oh, and guess what? We're not going to let them pass unless they say that. No, she's done that for a very specific reason. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most important topics within the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, our faith is worthless. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today in chapter 15. So if you'll turn there, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I passed on to you as the most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at the time. Most of them are still alive, but some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So Paul starts out this chapter by simply reminding the Corinthians of the gospel. This isn't new to them. They've already heard it, and most of them believed it. So looking back on verse 3, Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Andrew Wilson says that this sentence, verse 3 and 4 and 5, are one of the most important sentences ever written. Why? Because it almost perfectly encapsulates the gospel in its entirety and sums it up right there for you in two to to three sentences. And we could honestly probably do an entire sermon series just on these few verses right here, Um, but I have 55 other verses to get through in this chapter, so um, we will not be doing that today. Um, But just to kind of break it down, some of the key aspects of the gospel. Jesus came to earth, he died, he was buried, he raised on the third day, And all of this was according to the scriptures. Just like Paul says, this was supposed to happen. This was how it was supposed to go. And then he appeared to the disciples. Thus, there's eyewitness proof of his resurrection. And again, I wish I had time to dive into everything in those couple of verses, but 55 more verses to go. So, um, Paul reminds them of the gospel of Jesus. He's pointing out that he didn't just make this thing up. That this is what they've heard over and over again. But they've also heard it from Jesus' apostles or his disciples. So Paul's saying, hey, I'm preaching to you the same thing that the apostles are preaching. This isn't new. This isn't different. It's the same thing. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Because, by the way, they were still alive at this point. So um, up until this point, Paul has, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been responding to various topics about the church of Corinth whether this was something that they sent to him in a letter that we don't have or things that they've heard about um, 
through one way or another, but he's been responding to various issues going on in the church. And it's not until verse 12 in this chapter that we finally get to see what that issue is. Verse 12 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were some in the church who were saying that there's absolutely no resurrection, period. And it's not that they didn't believe that we would have life after death. They believed in heaven. And it's not that they didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. They believed that. But they're saying that we as Christians would not have a bodily resurrection. That whenever we die and we're buried, it's staying there, period. Nothing else is happening. And I feel like this topic of bodily resurrection, honestly, isn't talked about all that much um, within the Christian community. Um, Stephen Um sums it up pretty well when he says, people tend to think that Christian doctrine of resurrection has simply to do with the resurrection of Christ in the past. It is that, but it is more. The Christian doctrine of resurrection includes the belief that not only was Christ raised in the past, but also all believers will be raised in the future. So within this topic of resurrection is both Christ's past resurrection and our future bodily resurrection. Um, and the Corinthians are denying that it's possible for man to be raised from the dead, which Paul has a major problem with. In verse 13, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Jesus has been raised. So Paul's kind of like, okay, if you're saying that there's no, that man cannot be raised from the dead, what about Jesus? And if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we have a problem. We have a big problem. Um, and this, that's where the real rubber meets the road, that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we have major issues with our faith, right? Um, so let's keep reading in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised, for in fact... For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. So that's a lot. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then according to Paul, our faith is totally worthless. Because if he's not raised, the object of our faith is still in that grave. We have nothing to trust in because he's dead. And if Jesus is dead, we have no hope. Because if he's dead, you see, that means he's not God. And if he's not God, our sins cannot possibly have been forgiven. Basically, it boils down to, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, there's no point in us being here. There's no point in me being on the stage. There's no point in you listening because we have no hope. Our sins are not forgiven. All of Jesus is not dead. And we would be stuck in our sin. And that's why during Impact, if y'all leave Jesus dead, that's why we don't sign off because it's kind of important. Because what good would it to be what good would it do to tell people about Jesus and then, but if he can't do anything, because if he's still dead, we have no hope. So that's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. Our entire faith rests on it. Without him being alive, 
it's all, none of this has a point to it. And Paul says we would be pitied more than anyone else. So I kind of think of how if we were to look at someone that follows another religion, maybe Hinduism or, Bo- or Buddhism, they've given their life to this thing that they have faith in. But as Christians, we ultimately know that their faith is in vain because we believe that God is the one true God and, he, and Jesus is the only way to heaven. So much like we might look at someone like that and take pity on them and want them to know the truth, Paul's saying, if Jesus has not been resurrected, we should be pitied just like that. Because our whole faith, our whole life would then be in vain. But, there's a but. Verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. So, because Christ is raised from the dead, we can have hope. Our faith is not worthless because the object of our faith and the person of our faith is very much alive. And because he has been resurrected from the dead, we also know that he is very much God. And yeah, another reason that it is so powerful, the resurrection, is because if God ha- sorry, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, that proves everything he said. We know without a doubt that what Jesus taught all throughout Scripture was 100% true because he's gone and proved it. He said he was on a rise three days later, and guess what? He did. But if he hasn't raised from the dead, then that shows him to be a liar because he said he was going to rise up from the dead, and he didn't. So I think it's really important that we have a few um, evidences for defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, And just as a kind of side note, Jesus... His existence, death, and burial are all considered to be historical fact. Um, only the most extreme of skeptics will deny that Jesus as a person existed. Um, and that he, was, he died on a cross and that he was buried. Only the most extreme of skeptics will. That is historical fact, both from Christian historians and non-Christian historians alike. Um, so the question then becomes, did Jesus come down to earth, die, and rise again. Which we all should have a resounding yes for. But anyway, some of the defenses of that. One, his death. Yes, he did, in fact, die on the cross. Um, Romans were very skilled in what they do. And what they were doing in that case was crucifixion. They were very good at it, and they knew how to make sure people were dead. So you might have some skeptics say, oh, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. It's like, really? You want me to believe that a team of trained Roman soldiers who did this all the time did not know how to properly kill someone because they did. And whenever we look at um, 1 John 5, 6, it talks about how when Jesus was hit with the spear on his side, both blood and water um, flowed out. Now, the Bible usually uses the word water there, but in modern times, we know that that's plasma. So whenever the heart ceases to function your blood and plasma separate from each other because it's not being mixed up. Now, the medical professionals in the room can probably give a much better explanation than that, but um, there's my quick synopsis of that. So anyway, we see in John, blood and water start to flow out of Jesus' side, showing that his heart has stopped. And then the burial. In Matthew 27, 57, 
we see he is buried in the tomb of a well-known citizen that was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the, um, the religious leaders of the day. Um, and so he was buried in a well-known tomb, and then his tomb was sealed. So basically, they would take this massive stone, roll it over the entrance of the tomb, and for most people, that's kind of where it would sit. But to make sure that nobody would, have, would try and steal his body, the religious leaders went and got pieces of rope and stretched it across and then got hot wax and they would have put it over that rope in various sections to where if that stone was moved, it would have been very obvious. And this was done by Roman decree. So if anyone would have moved that, that stone, it would have been punishable by death. So this would not have been something that someone would have been like, oh, hey, y'all, y'all want to go move Jesus' body? It'll be fun. Like, no, they would die, like, very quickly, because there is Roman guards guarding the place. And guess what? They were also very good at what they did. And if those guards were to let anything happen to that body, they would die. Got it? So the guards were very highly motivated to keep that body safe. So we know he died. We know he was buried. He was sealed in a tomb. He was guarded by Roman guards, which, by the way, in order for someone to actually sneak by them. Like, let's say a skeptic says, oh yeah, the Roman guards fell asleep. They would have to move this incredibly large stone that I believe it said it took three or four people to roll it in place, all while these guards were sleeping. I sleep pretty deep, but I'm not sure that I sleep that deep. That would have made a huge noise. There's no way that someone could have snuck past them and gotten into that tomb without those Roman guards knowing. Plus, like I said earlier, they were very motivated to not fall asleep because the whole, if anything happens, you die thing. So, um, let's see. And one of the most powerful defenses of the resurrection, in my opinion, is the disciples. Right after Jesus' death, they would have been terrified. Um, At one point when Jesus appears to them, it even describes them as hiding in a room because they were scared. Their leader, their master, had just been brutally murdered. They were scared, because the same thing could probably happen to them. So we see the disciples hiding in a room, and then Jesus appears to them. And it is a complete change. They are no longer scared. They're no longer hiding. In fact, they are going out and proclaiming the gospel, despite what might happen to them. And that type of change doesn't happen because of a lie. If the disciples knew that Jesus was not risen, that type of change doesn't happen. You don't go out and face death for something that you know is a lie. And then also, we have an account of um, Jesus appearing to, yes, the disciples, but then also 500 others. And Paul even goes through and lists some names. And he's like, hey, you don't believe me? Go ask them. They're still alive. At least a lot of them are. He says that some have fallen asleep, which is Paul's way of saying they, they've passed away. But go ask them. They're still alive. If anyone's denying it, we would have known. Like, that would have been a big thing if Paul's like, yeah, go ask Megan. She can tell you she saw, she saw Jesus. And then if Megan was like, I didn't see Jesus, that would have been a big thing, right? So we have all these eyewitness reports all to corroborate Jesus' resurrection. 
And then the last thing is, there's not a body. All the Roman authorities or religious leaders would have had to do to shut down this whole Christian movement is to say, yeah, here's Jesus' body. But there's not a body. Um, So all those things put together, I think you can make a pretty strong case for the case that Jesus is, in fact, raised from the dead. So let's continue in verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, and the resurrection of death also comes through a man, just as Adam all die, so, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So this phrase, the first fruits, refers to a sample of fruit that was taken from a vineyard or an orchard um, or really any type of crop. Um, and they would look at that sample and make sure it was good. If the sample was good, then it was very likely that the rest of the crop would be good. If the sample was bad, it was very likely that the rest of the crop would be bad. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus is kind of like that, that sample of fruit. Um, and we are the rest of the crop. Since Christ was resurrected, that means that we as Christians who are in Christ will also be resurrected. So Jesus is that first fruit, and it was good, right? So Paul's making the connection that since the first fruit was good, we as Christians who are in Christ will also be resurrected in a bodily resurrection in heaven. So throughout the Bible, Jesus is often referred to as the second Adam, um, be, and there's certain parallels between Adam and Jesus. So through Adam, sin entered the world. Through Jesus, we have freedom from that sin. Um, through Adam, we are under the consequences of death. Through Jesus, we are alive. Um, so whenever we read things like this, we can kind of kind of see how cool those parallels are. But I also want to be careful. So like in verse 22, it says, For just as in Adam all die, and also in Christ all are made alive. Um, so don't get confused in thinking that Paul is preaching universalism, which is basically the idea or belief that everyone will be saved regardless of what they think of Jesus. Um, he's not preaching that whatsoever here. Um, those all phrases there, those are tied to their pers- respective people. So all are in sin, and all who are in Christ will be made alive. So Paul's definitely not preaching universalism there. Um, let's see. All right, so we are actually going to skip down to verse 29. So starting in 29, otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people being baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought the wild beast in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. So Paul goes into this rather odd section about being baptized for the dead. Um, And remember that Paul is responding to certain things that he's either heard about the Corinthians or that they have written him about. So scholars disagree on the exact specifics um, of what exactly happened But the general consensus is that there was a group of believers who died before they could get baptized, and their friends or family were then being baptized in their place. Um, So, like, if I died, Chris would then go and get baptized and say, this is for Caleb, something like that. Um, So, 
is Paul saying that we should be baptized for the dead? Short answer, no. Um, Sometimes in Scripture, we see prescriptive statements where the writer is telling us to do something, such as in Matthew 28, when Jesus says to go make disciples. That's a command that we are supposed to go do. Then other times in Scripture, we see a descriptive statement. That is where the writer is just describing something that is going on or that's happening um, that we should know about, but they're not necessarily saying, go do that thing. So this is one of those instances where it's descriptive. Paul's just telling us what happened. Um, And then he's able to turn around and use that as a tool um, and an argument kind of against the Corinthians. So he says, if there is no resurrection, like the Corinthians are claiming, why would they even care about being baptized for someone that's already dead? Their body's there. It's done, right? Why would they even care? Plus, there's a little bit of the irony that um, baptism in itself is a um, symbolic form of death and resurrection. So that's a little bit odd there if they don't believe in resurrection. But, um, hey. So he then takes it a step further and says that if there's no resurrection at all, why are they even risking their lives? Because in this period of time, it would have been fairly dangerous for them to proclaim the gospel. He's like, if there's no resurrection, what's the point? Like, why, why even try? Why put myself at risk telling y'all about Jesus? And because if there's no resurrection, our hope ends here on earth. And that's what Paul is so, he's so passionate about getting at this. That way they can understand and that they know they have a future hope. Sorry, I was looking at the wrong page. We almost went back a few verses, but that's okay. Um, So, continuing in verse 5, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have and when they come? And you fool, you sow what does not come... Sorry, I cannot read today. You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. There we go. Um, so, it seems like a simple enough question. So, they're asking Paul, What kind of body will we have? And, honestly, that'd be a pretty f- fascinating answer to hear Paul say, right? Um, I kind of want to know, too. But Paul's response is kind of shocking. He calls them fools. But this, isn't be- this is because the Corinthians were not generally asking this question. They didn't actually want to know what, what type of body they, we would have. They were trying to mock Paul. They thought the idea of a bodily resurrection for us as Christians was absurd. After all, how can a decaying body like ours last forever? They had no idea of what this could possibly look like, and so they were mocking Paul. And you can almost kind of hear the sneering and the question, well, how exactly are we going to look whenever we're raised from the dead? Yeah, what will those bodies look like? So they're kind of poking fun at Paul, and Paul's not having it. He puts them directly in their place, saying, you fools, do you not know whatever you sow does not come to life unless it dies? So... Paul's kind of giving them a, um, Paul's showing them that they see this exact same thing all the time through plants. We see that if a seed is put in the ground, it must die first, and then from that dead seed will come to life a new plant. Um, So Paul's showing them that they've seen this type of thing all the time, and he's relating that to our physical bodies, that our current physical bodies, in this analogy, are like the seed. 
that they must die, and then from that, they will be transformed into something new. And just like whenever you take an acorn, a simple little acorn, you can put it in the ground and see this magnificent tree. Granted, it takes some time, but you could almost never guess that something as simple as an acorn could turn into a huge tree like it does. Technically the same, but unimaginably different. And Paul's saying this is what it will be like with our resurrected bodies. They will be technically the same, but unimaginably different. In verse 51, he says, Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed, clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is in sin, and the power of sin and the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul closes out this chapter by looking to the future, where all who are in Christ will be made new. And for those that are in Christ, the thought of this future should fill you with hope. Revelation 21 tells us that there will be no more death, no more pain, no more tears, all the trials, all the suffering, all the heartaches that we've had will be no more and we'll be at the feet of Jesus worshiping him. And in verse 53, Paul describes that when we are called home, death will be defeated once and for all because we will no longer have bodies that are vulnerable to death. He, he kind of gives this analogy saying, saying our bodies will be clothed in incorruptibility. That's a fun word to say. Um, they'll be clothed, so they'll put on something new. Just like that acorn, they'll be unimaginably different. And he closes out by saying, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul then takes a step back and looks at the here and now. And I want to stop for a second and point out the first word in this verse, therefore. Um, a little trick I was taught in high school is whenever you see the word therefore, ask what is the therefore there for? So there is a purpose in this word being there. Um, anytime you say, see therefore or so then, um, anything like that, that's saying because of this over here, do this. So when Paul says therefore in this context, he's saying because of our future hope in the resurrection, because we know we will have new, unimaginably different, resurrected bodies do this. And what is he saying to do? Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that you labor in the Lord, and the Lord is not in vain. Sorry. Excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here we go. So Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to live very intentional lives lives that are on mission, lives that are pursuing God with everything that they have. 
<clears throat> because we know our ultimate destination. We know what it's ultimately going to look like. So he, he reminds us to be intentional, to live our lives in a way that's honoring to Christ. If you all bow your heads with me, we'll pray, and then we can go to breakout groups. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity to come here and learn more about you, Father. Um, and I thank you for the hope that we have in the future, um, for the hope of a time where there will be no more pain, there will be no more tears, and we get to worship you day and night, Father. I pray for these discussion groups that they will have um, good discussion and that they will draw you close, draw everyone closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.